0: and independent right now 103.5 is 1110 and you know what we're going to kick it off now i'm going to open this mic and invite mr marty looney in the building hi marty
1: hey how are you it's great to be with you today
0: I mean, marty my dear it, friend
1: of many years <laughs> many many years many <laughs> years
0: uh worked on your campaign several years ago almost 15 20 yes. years ago <laughs> um and i was introduced to you by john martinez
1: ah uh, yes our great uh, great colleague uh, john did a superb job as a uh, uh, the first Latino state representative from New Haven, and uh, he was, uh, you know, a significant mover and shaker in the State House of Representatives. And his his death was a tragic loss to everyone.
0: No, it, it, to everyone. National uh, caucus uh, for legislators. I mean, he he had all kinds of positions. Yes. Um, and he and I had the privilege of getting to meet you in your campaign, and I worked in your and I walked your streets, um, with Miss Bonito. I think it was her name. And she showed me all about the Cove. And I was working with Menin and uh, Ralph Avila. Oh, no, yes,
1: yep. And yeah. Menin and Elba Franklin and uh, uh, the Fairhaven Group. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's <laughs> the old crew, the old crew. We've been, yes. of course, different people have stepped in since then. Yes. I don't want to show your age. In this I know. <laughs> so uh, you're, so let's talk a little bit about you, Marty. Where, where, where are you from? I mean, originally, are you from the Cove?
1: Oh, no. I was born uh, born in New Haven, Um uh, lived here all of my life was uh, grew up in in uh, Fairhaven uh, went my my parents uh, were immigrants from Ireland uh, my father immigrated here as uh, some of the others did because he had older siblings living in New Haven uh, my mother had an older sister who had moved to New York so she went there and then uh, they met at an Irish dance in uh, Rockaway Beach in New York and uh, uh, then they married and lived, lived in New Haven and uh, so I've lived here all of my life, Lived in, grew up in Fairhaven, went to St. Rose School, mm. uh, then went to Notre Dame High School in uh, in West Haven, then, then uh, went to Fairfield University, uh, an academic scholarship, and then uh, graduate school at the University of, uh, of Connecticut, and then later uh, law school at the University of Connecticut. So I've been uh, been in New Haven all my life. As a, uh, as a friend of mine, as my law partner, Jack, he said, you basically lived your whole life in a couple of zip codes.
0: <laughs> yeah, in the you same city.
1: did <laughs> <laughs> you have yeah. i mean
0: you're talking about homegrown organic you know that's organic right. people you're one of them <laughs> that's right so you've seen the transitions in these neighborhoods you i mean you've obviously seen the transitions in Fairhaven from when you were a child to now yes why do, or i mean outside of of course the demographic being totally different what had, had you seen economically change in that
1: area well certainly there's been uh, there have been increasing levels of uh, uh of poverty and in the community, the, uh, uh, the advent of the, uh, of the drug problems, uh, that, that has been a, a problem. But still, there is a core in, in Fairhaven of, uh, uh, of solid, hardworking people um, looking to uh, own their own homes and thrive in that neighborhood. So you know, while, it, while it has changed with the uh, different waves of uh, ethnic immigration over the years, there, it's still a, a solid neighborhood. There's lots of beautiful housing stock there, uh, and it's still a vibrant community in many ways.
0: Uh, grand Avenue over the years uh, has gone an influx, and when you drive down Grand Avenue right now, there are very little empty storefronts on Grand Avenue showing how uh, economically diverse and and rich that neighborhood is when it comes to businesses uh, what What do you think contributes to that healthy business atmosphere on that, on that grand avenue sector?
1: Well, I think Grand Avenue has always been a, a thriving commercial uh, area there's uh, um, uh, lots of storefronts fronting on fronting on the avenue. Um, lots of businesses operating there on, on the whole length of the avenue from from East Grand all the way to the uh, uh, all the way to Olive Street, and it's a uh, it's a, a thriving commercial uh, area, just as you have you know Whaley Avenue in, in the western part of the city, and and also uh, uh, areas in the hill with uh, uh, Columbus and, and Washington and other places. Mm-hmm. But Grand Avenue needs to be uh, preserved as a vital commercial center, uh, and uh, the small businesses operating there really are the lifeblood of that neighborhood.
0: I mean, there's a distinction between Grand Avenue and Dixwell Avenue. I mean, we're talking about two, two communities. They're very yes. distinct. And right now there's more empty storefronts on Dixwell versus Grand Avenue. Uh,
1: that's I mean, true. And Dixwell, of course, is another uh, vital cog um, in in our community. And there's going to be a, a, a significant, I think, stabilization on Dixwell Avenue will occur because of the, uh, the resurrection of the Q House and some of the other developments that are planned for the Dixwell neighborhood. Um, I, I foresee a, a great recovery in Dixwell uh, in the years to come as well.
0: Oh wow, you're very you're very up to speed on every <laughs> every part of New Haven, not just your own. But I guess you have to be, don't you? As, as a state, you have to be concerned about your neighbors to the left, right, north of you.
1: Well, that's right. I represent uh, the eastern half of New Haven and and uh, half of Hamden uh as well, and uh, Senator Gary Winfield represents the western half of New Haven and uh part of West Haven. Uh but uh, but I think uh, you know New Haven did have a population gain in the last census. That's an encouraging sign. We went from uh, about one hundred thirty thousand to one hundred thirty five thousand, uh, and uh, uh, that's a a sign after years of declining population. we did have an increase uh, and as did Bridgeport, as did uh, Stanford had a major increase. The only one of the major cities that had a population loss was Hartford that lost three thousand people between uh, two thousand ten mm-hmm. and two thousand twenty. so there is uh, there is growth. you know we're seeing a tremendous growth in housing in downtown with the all of the the new uh, you know, biotech businesses and the spin-off research from Yale that's taking place, that's attracting uh, people to New Haven. Uh, so I think uh, uh, New Haven is uh, is on the rise in so many ways.
0: Oh, we, we always focus on the problems. You like to focus on the positive. I see right now in <laughs> your vernacular, you like to focus on the, on the good things. Um, as a state senator, I mean, what got you? Let's go back to Eric a little, because I like I, what got you? Into, you're, you're a lawyer, you yes. work with Jack Keys. It, then you became a politician, and what made you decide or who... Who tricked you into this?
1: Well, actually, it's sort of the other way around. My friends kid me because I was already in the uh, state legislature when I went to law school. So people say, hey, there are lots of lawyers who become politicians. You were already a politician, so you're doing your career backward. But <laughs> but I will uh, tell you how it how it happened. Uh, as I said, I uh, you know, went to Fairfield University, uh, majored in, in English with a minor in theology, then went to, uh, to UConn for graduate school, got a master's degree in English, and was working on a, a Ph.D. program in English there. But I always had a, a political interest. My uh, doctoral dissertation was going to be on the – the political novels of anthony Trollope, who was a uh, you know a victorian area, uh, era british novelist and uh, however um, yeah i think my, my whole life pattern might have been different uh, except for for one uh, one particular evening i was home for the weekend uh, visiting uh, with my mother my my father had recently passed away and then uh, was going to go back to to, to yukon and uh, i uh, decided i'd stay home a little longer have dinner with my mother before heading back to stores and the uh, the doorbell rang and there were two people who were uh, going door-to-door campaigning in Fairhaven. There was a mayoral campaign going on that year. Mm-hmm. And the two people were a member of the Board of Alders named Frank Logue, who was running for Alder year, Logue, running for yep. mayor that year, and with him was a young woman who was his campaign manager. Her name was Rosa Deloro, and that was the day I met both of them. And uh, uh, they said that someone had given them my name as somebody who was um, active in the community because uh, St. Rose of Lima Parish, uh, the boundaries of that parish were pretty much coterminous with a, a political ward. And someone had given them my name. They said, frankly, they had no political organization in that neighborhood. They were trying to build one. It was a stronghold for the incumbent organization of Mayor Guida. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, friends of mine had encouraged me to run for Alderman at some point. Uh, and they said, well, this this could be the year because there'll be uh, campaigns going on all over the city and a network of people running. And they said, we'd encourage you to do it. They asked me to come to a meeting that week that uh, sort of how to run for alder meeting that, that they were sponsoring. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, I went to that meeting, was even more intrigued, uh, talked to my friends and said, well, let's do this. So I became uh, a candidate for the Board of Alders and the coordinator for Logue in that part of Fairhaven, and uh, um, got carried my petitions to get on the ballot because I was running against an incumbent uh, alder and mm-hmm. uh, helped him get on the ballot by getting uh, petitions there. And uh, I defeated the incumbent Democratic alder by 27 votes in wow. the primary. tight. that was tight. And uh, Logue lost the ward by uh, about 180, but I won by 27, so there were a lot of... Uh, of split votes there, the people knew me from the neighborhood and, and all of that. And then mm-hmm. uh, it it worked out that in the general election, of course, that whole area of the city uh, went Republican and voted for John Esposito, who was mm-hmm. the Republican candidate because uh, it was a stronghold for uh, uh, the chairman Arthur Barbarian, Mayor Guida. So uh, that was the high watermark for the Republicans in terms of electing alders. They elected nine Republican alders uh, that year. So I lost to the Republican candidate in our ward, uh, Art De Sorbo, who mm-hmm. went on to become the minority leader of the of the board. But uh, again, I, I I lost by uh, about 200 votes, Logue lost by 500, and uh, then I was thinking, well, I better go back and uh, uh, concentrate on getting back to my Ph.D. program. But then I got a call from Rosa DeLoro, who was the new chief of staff to the mayor, and said, you know, we impressed with the work you did in this campaign. We'd like to come, have you come be part of this administration to, uh, to do uh, uh, outreach for the mayor, to uh, do wow. uh, research on neighborhood issues, to accompany him to public meetings and to follow up on the issues that are raised there. So that was my great political and governmental apprenticeship and education for uh, three and a half years in the Logan administration. So I would uh, go out to help set up community meetings for him, accompany him to those meetings, uh, take notes and follow up on the issues that uh, uh, that rose there. Also arrange meetings of uh, activists to come into City Hall to meet with him uh communicate with the department heads about neighborhood issues so it really was a nuts and bolts education in both politics and government during uh, those uh, years i also developed an interest in running for the legislature if an opportunity ever came because uh volunteered mm-hmm. on a couple of legislative campaigns for people who were uh close to mayor logan including bill dyson um <laughs> representative tom wall in the hill and uh, but in 79 when uh, when logan was defeated by mayor uh, by then police chief Toledo in a primary then i was at another crossroads and uh, figured what was i going to do next and uh, uh, the state representative in the district where I live was a guy named Joe Carbone, who was mm-hmm. about my age, was very popular and uh, very, uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, very competent as a state rep. But then all of a sudden he announced he wasn't going to run again uh, because he was going to become the new chief of staff to the new mayor. So all of a sudden there was an open seat in my district. Wow. So I, I ran for that and uh, again, didn't get the party endorsement, uh, uh, but qualified for a primary and uh, um, and won the primary. And uh, I thank uh, Rosa DeLauro, Stan Greenberg, uh, Louisa DeLauro, and others were key parts of my mm-hmm. campaign mm-hmm. effort for that. So I won the primary and uh, then was elected state rep. And then, uh, right after getting elected state rep, I uh, went to law school. So, <laughs> so I did that while I was uh, went to law school serving while I was serving the House of Representatives. So I was a, a state rep for uh, six terms and then uh, was elected to the state senate when uh, my predecessor, Senator Tony Avalon, decided mm-hmm. not to run again. He was uh, about to become a member of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, So then I was elected to the the state Senate and uh, served as chair of the the Banks Committee and then uh, ranking member on the Judiciary Committee when we were in the minority for one term. Uh, Then I became chairman of the Finance, Revenue, and Bonding Committee for three terms uh, and then majority leader of the Senate, chosen by my colleagues after that uh, for 12 years. And then for the last eight years, I've been the president pro tem. And then when I came out of law (laughs) school, I I started practicing uh, in 85, started practicing with Jack Keys because – uh, he was uh, running to succeed his father as probate judge that year, and and they needed to take on mm-hmm. another lawyer to take on some of the work. So, so Vinnie Morrow, senior, who was our town chair at the time, said, "Marty Looney's graduating from law school. Why don't you talk to him?" And he said to me, uh, uh, the Keys need another lawyer. Why don't you talk to them? So, oh, so wow. then he helped set that up. And uh, so I've been out with Jack for 37 years practicing law. And, and for
0: those who don't know who Jack Keys is, he's one of the prominent lawyers in the United States, let alone New Haven.
1: Right. And the former and the probate judge in this district for uh, for many years. And uh, and his father uh, uh, was one of the greatest people I ever met. And uh, he was uh, there for the first 13 years uh, that I practiced with uh, with him and with Jack and then since then with Jack. Uh, I would Jack. say,
0: the, can I just say this? You had a great mixture of drive, opportunity, and people around you. I mean, you have an eternal drive that you wanted to do something. You always wanted to looking for something, but you had great people in your corner. I mean, you just mentioned six or seven great politicians that right now belong in the history books in here in New Haven for what they've done, and opportunities were just presented to you along the way, and you were always positioned perfectly to take advantage of those opportunities
1: i think that sums it up <laughs> in a nutshell I, i've been blessed by uh, having opportunities occur at a time when i was prepared to take advantage of them and uh, and having the support of uh, wonderful people who uh, uh, who uh, had faith in me and, and and helped me to achieve those objectives and uh, i'll be forever grateful for those opportunities that's why I, uh, I love serving in the general assembly as much today as i did the day i was first elected uh, Whenever I get off the Capitol area exit and see that gold dome, I still get a rush of feeling about <laughs> what an honor it is to be elected by a group of people in the state mm-hmm. uh, to be their state senator. And it's, uh, it's such a blessing and such an honor. Uh,
0: I, I still see now. Now I look at you. I see this nice, humble kid from Fairhaven. Let mm-hmm. me read off something here. Kebra, Kebra, Kebra. I don't know Kebra. I don't want to say your name wrong again. LaShawn Smith. She's a listener. Good morning, Senator Looney. My grandmother, Hattie Turner. Had a great amount of respect for you. Thank you for your service to our community. My grandmother's example of being a community Kibra, (laughs) of uh, being a community servant and your leadership at the Capitol are a few of the reasons I became a community service and advocate that. I am, as a nurse and serial entrepreneur with several businesses that create jobs and opportunity for our community. So thank you.
1: Oh, well, thank you for uh, those comments. And, of course, uh, your grandmother, Hattie Turner, w- was one of the, the legendary uh, people in Connecticut, uh, in New Haven, a community organizer, somebody who was a uh, a magnet for those who needed help. And uh, she knew exactly how to advocate with government and social service agencies uh, uh, to uh, to get people help if they thought they were in a vacuum and no one was listening. She found a way to make sure they got listened to.
0: You are like a human encyclopedia now. <laughs> you're like a, a historian a walking historian because you have first contact with so many community leaders over the time uh what do you see are are good qualities in a community leader
1: i think first of all um, it has to be about about service you have to have a, a genuine interest in um in in helping people um and in uh, trying to find out what the authentic needs are and what is the best way to address those needs. And uh, uh, that's why I'm a, I'm, I'm a Democrat. I'm a firm believer uh, in government. Uh, if it is run effectively, responsibly, and with accountability, it can be a great force for good uh, in in a community, in a city, in a state, in the nation. Uh, I think the, the administration of Franklin D. Roosevelt is an example of that. What he was able to do uh, when he came in to have an, an active government to counter the effects of the Great Depression is... Uh, is something I think is still the, uh, mm-hmm. the high watermark of government mm-hmm. achievement, followed by you know what President Johnson did uh, with the, the Great Society, and his administration, of course, was marred by the Vietnam War. But the social service policies that that he pursued mm-hmm. are, are still you know the foundation today. So uh, that's a fundamental difference. I think the I think Republicans um, um, do not believe in the efficacy of, of government. Uh, they would, in some cases, rather see people suffer than have government have the power uh, to assist them. Uh, you know, Grover Norquist was saying at one point that uh, he'd like to see government get to be so small that he could some point strangle it in the bathtub. Uh, I,
0: I I just saw a recent article in the New York Times uh, that said that uh, states that are run by Republican governors uh, take more than give, and states that are run by Democratic governors give more back to the government than they actually receive from the government.
1: That's absolutely right. And we have, we have a, a Republican state senator actually serving... Uh, now, uh, with us, in a speech on the Senate floor, at one point said he looks forward to the day where the people of Connecticut shouldn't have to pay any attention at all to what state government does; that it will be empowered to do so little. Mm. You know, that's the stark contrast I think between uh, uh, between them and, and us. You know, when my when my son was little, we lived on the uh, the second floor on Woolsey Street in Fairhaven, and my mother was on the first floor, and uh, uh, they used to play a little game where if she had loose change around, he would grab the loose change, and she would chase him and make make believe she was chasing him to get mm-hmm. her money back. So one day. Uh, a little while before that, he had asked me about, well, what's the difference between Democrats and Republicans? He was about six or seven years old. And I said, well, Democrats uh, feel that government has an obligation to help people in need, uh, those who are struggling, those who need some assistance. Uh, and Republicans basically don't feel that obligation. Uh, mm-hmm. They feel that people should be left on their own to sink or, or, or swim, unless those people tend to be, you know, well-connected corporate people uh, looking for a government subsidy. And then they're they're certainly willing to help them. So I didn't realize how much of a lesson he had absorbed until... Uh, one day he grabbed some change. He was headed up the stairs. He was laughing. My mother was chasing him. She said, you know, stop him. The little thief took my money. I said, "That's Michael, give grandma back her money or she'll be one of the poor people. And he said, I don't care. I'm a Republican. <laughs> and of course he was not. But it showed, showed me that he absorbed the lesson <laughs> that I had told him.
0: That is, that is uh, another article. I think this was from the Post that, that mentioned that like, Connecticut is like the number one socialist state in the country in regards to monies and how it's spent on the community. Well, we see
1: ourselves as part of a peer group of, of progressive states: uh, uh, Massachusetts, uh, New York, New Jersey, to some extent, uh, California, Illinois, and Connecticut. I, I think uh, mm-hmm. stand in the forefront of, of having um, a- active state governments that recognize an obligation to uh, uh, to provide for social service needs.
0: Mm. Uh, I was t- I was mentioning earlier about the disparity in housing and uh, the need for low income housing affordable housing, also affordable home ownership, which is the next level of, I guess, the progression of affordability, especially here in New Haven um, and the Fairhaven community, is, is, is eventually going to happen where people are going to start getting priced out. What protections can we have to assure that there is affordable homes for people to purchase, it's especially single-family homes, because that's the American dream, isn't it?
1: It is, absolutely. And the, the key is, I think, making sure... Uh, that uh, that people can afford uh, the mortgages that are going to be needed if they're going to be home we need to have more uh, capacity to subsidize mortgages for uh, for moderate uh, income people down payment assistance plans mm-hmm. uh, and uh, because we know that that neighborhoods that have a strong component of owner occupied homes are strong neighborhoods mm-hmm. uh, the, the people have a, have a great interest in maintaining their property uh, even if they're multifamily homes if the owner is a resident there uh, you have a stable community and uh, and also a network where people be, be feel part of the community. They become uh, members of neighborhood and community organizations, and that becomes a uh, a stable neighborhood rather than one that is uh, rootless in some way. So, so we need both to provide uh, a significant increase in affordable uh, rental housing, uh, but also to make a commitment to home ownership, uh, both by by help, uh, finding ways for down payment assistance programs putting money into that as well as mortgage subsidies.
0: Well, let's start with education then, right? Because yes. isn't that where it all starts? I mean, if you're not financial literate, if you're not well-educated, of course, you're not going to make ends meet. You're going to uh, find it very more more difficult, I should say, to make that transition from rentals to homeownership. Um, what can we do? Or You know, you can tell here in New Haven, we have issues with the New Haven board. Um, Ms. Tracy is stepping down I later this year. Uh, there was an article that they misnumbered the number of days the students should have been in school last year. Uh, w- what's going on with our education system, and where do you see positive changes can occur?
1: Well, first of all, I think the thing that was uh, most alarming was the decline in reading and math scores that was uh, was reported and the, the reluctance of the New Haven Board to adopt the uh, the new reading curriculum, which is shown to be effective. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when, when the state uh, adopts a curriculum, it's... Uh, uh, it's something that the, the towns are supposed to act on. It's not mm-hmm. a suggestion. It's it's a requirement. And uh, uh, I think uh, clearly the pandemic has had a much greater effect in uh, in, in lower income communities and, and lower income neighborhoods within uh, those communities with uh, more uh, uh, disruption of education, more time lost, uh, less capacity to uh, to be online and make up for lessons that are lost in school. I know that in uh, in fact New Haven itself did a study uh, during the pandemic, of, looked at a a, a street in Fairhaven. I believe they looked at Ferry Street, and they looked at, I think it was Yale Avenue in Westville, and the there were streets that had similar numbers of kids enrolled in the public school system, mm-hmm. uh, but the kids who were successfully connected online mm-hmm. in Westville were so much higher than
0: mm-hmm. the kids
1: who were successfully connected online and uh, and sustained that in Fairhaven. It was just another uh, issue of the manifestation of the difference that uh, that poverty makes. Now w- we recognize that in in uh, this year's. Uh, budget and the legislation that we passed was Senate Bill 1 and Senate Bill 2, which were, and House Bill 5001. So these were really high priority bills mm-hmm. for both the House and Senate Democratic Caucus. And we are putting a great deal more money and resources into early childhood education uh, and support for uh, pre K uh, and daycare programs because that's where it all has to start. Because we know in many cases that people come from a deprived atmosphere and if kids have not had quality preschool or quality care at home. They come to kindergarten already, sometimes a couple of years Mm -hmm. behind Mm -hmm. developmentally, and they may never catch up because uh, immediately they sense that difference uh, and school sometimes becomes a place of humiliation for them rather than achievement. Um, And those are the kids who within a few years are are, uh, truant and then shortly after that may get into trouble with the juvenile system uh, and then spin out of control altogether. But uh, if kids are able to be successful and be uh, rewarded for their achievement and feel good about themselves in the early school years, uh, the battle is really um, halfway won at that point. If kids do well in kindergarten, first, mm-hmm. second, third grade, you know they're on their way to doing well forever. Uh, mm-hmm. And if they, if they it's so true, yeah. true.
0: You're right. You're right. Uh, you get them early, you hook them in, you know, at, at those beginning stages, and they develop. But unfortunately, right now we're at a point in, in our history, and especially with, with with regards to our children, they do not have the skill set, the reading level, the the computation levels, uh, you know, the skill levels to take these jobs right, that you need, high, well-paying jobs, to go and eventually buy a home in four or five years because they just don't have that baseline uh, of education. So how do we help remedy these children now that got passed on? Because it was a pass-fail for two years almost. Right.
1: That's why we really have to renew efforts now in in kids who uh, may have lost those two years of education to have – uh, intensive remediation programs uh, to put more resources into after school programs to help kids catch up summer programs uh, as well there has to be there has to be a lot of supplements uh, to the standard education uh, year in order to help make up for that lost time um, and to uh, to have kids be able to re- recapture those skills mm-hmm. uh, and catch up to grade level because it 's uh, it's so important then at the other end, we also have to have uh, programs for uh, high quality technical education. Uh, for those who uh, want to go into the trades or into a, a technical program after high school, rather than college, because not everybody uh, wants to go to college right after uh, right after high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we need to find a way where people can be gainfully employed uh, without a college education. However, uh, even manufacturing jobs are much more technically sophisticated. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, manu- they're
0: basically run by machines. Basically you have run to know. by machines. Yeah. So you
1: have to be skilled in running the machine and and. Uh, 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 reading the complex operating manual for that machine. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can't uh, do what people did years ago. My father uh, worked as a uh, um, a forklift operator at at, at Winchester's uh, for many years. Wow. uh, You know, he was an immigrant from Ireland. Most of the people he worked with were, uh, you know, were uh, immigrants. He was a a bright man but had uh, Mm -hmm. uh, not a lot of formal education. Mm -hmm. But he was able to support his family. Once the union got into Winchester's uh, that he helped work to get in and and wages went up, uh, you know, we were able to do well because – you know, lived carefully and modestly, but uh, uh, we weren't struggling. And my mother stayed mm-hmm. home and didn't go to work until I was in high school. Wow. So uh, it was, but it was you know a, a good union job, uh, mm-hmm. even though it didn't require a lot of skills when he went in. That was the secret. And uh, uh, but those jobs now are, are not existent but they also require a higher level of entry-level skill than they did at that time. I mean, right
0: now, I mean, we are even talking about McDonald's. I, I I got a friend of mine who manages and owns a few McDonald's, and if the the machine goes down he struggles to find individuals that can actually do the math to keep it running
1: to make make the change to make the change.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just, I mean, that's how bad our education system has gotten, especially here in New Haven where you can't even run a business based on the basic knowledge of your employees where, I mean, you can, we can say now that we can supplement the education, but, we really do make have to make an effort because I know a couple of kids who graduated high school they were just passed on they, oh, yes. they didn't they didn't some of these people are not graduating without being able to read or do basic math where, I know, where do we, how do we help uh, them
1: well that's the phenomenon of social promotion you know that uh, kids are just passed along but I, I think that uh, you know we don't necessarily in some cases want to hold people uh, back because that may increase the likelihood that they'll drop out but that's where I think you you need an intervention with um, a significant additional uh, support, tutoring, uh, to help those kids catch up. After-school programs, summer programs, um, supplemental tutoring, uh, extra assistance during the school day that focuses upon uh, weak areas that the student may have. I think that uh, we have to identify where those weaknesses are and then address them. And so, so otherwise, we fail.
0: Would you be on board with like a, a post-high school, like you know, uh, trade program or something like that 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 is free to you know because. Of course, no one's going to be able to afford trade school. Some of these institutions, you know, institutes that are out there that train people in mechanics and all that, those cost money. Is there afraid? Uh, is there uh, uh, a way to provide a free version of these, but that provide very basic knowledge?
1: Well, I, I would certainly uh, support that. We do have uh, obviously technical schools and uh, technical high schools, but there, mm-hmm. uh, there aren't enough of them, and I don't think they can accommodate the large number of kids that might be interested. But also we have to make sure that the uh, uh, the kids are prepared to actually function in those uh, in those programs. So uh, I would support anything that uh, that bolsters uh, public technical education for students, because, uh, again, student debt, as we all know, is a a huge problem. And uh, one of the crises we and that's why I'm so pleased that uh, President uh, Biden has successfully pushed for uh, for the uh, provision that will will forgive a certain amount of uh, uh, student debt, because we know that their kids coming out of college now who are hugely in debt. Their mm-hmm. futures are already mm-hmm. burdened by that. It's going to mm-hmm. postpone uh, marriage and family formation, postpone buying houses. They won't be able to afford a down payment because they have uh, uh, student debt. And the ones who are the worst off are the ones who borrowed a lot of money to go to college and still, for whatever reason, did not finish college. Uh, just because you didn't get the degree doesn't mean you don't still have the debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are, are the ones who are actually the worst off.
0: Mm. And then, uh, but so, so we have various various levels of education that needs to become more affordable that's I think that's
1: absolutely right
0: probably the number one thing uh, and and also a like a, i would, I would say like a post high school type program that kids can go to and either learn a trade or catch up on those skills that they missed out on you know because the attention that 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 individuals that have difficulties in that system they don't get that support. I mean, they get muddled in with with a clique, get clumped into a group and then they get pushed on. How do we focus on those kids? I mean, is there monies to fo- to allow people to focus and to provide uh, teachers with more resources?
1: Well, yes, that's one of the things we did work on in, in this year's uh, budget and, and in some of the, the bills that we passed to address these needs that have existed a long time, but have been exacerbated and uh, and uh, come, I think, to greater public attention because of, of the pandemic. Uh one of the crises we face, and going back to student debt, is that the cost of higher education has accelerated uh, for the last 30 years mm-hmm. at a rate far greater than standard inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why it's is, is, it's so uh, damaging. Now, when I went to college uh, many years ago, it, I went to a private university, Fairfield University, uh, and got an academic scholarship that covered uh, most of my, uh, my tuition. But um, a kid in those days, if you were uh, en- enterprising and had a part-time job and uh, plus the scholarship aid I had, you know, it cost my parents very little for me to go to college, and uh, because the cost was uh, reasonable, even mm-hmm. though for even though it was a private university, and the public universities were less so. That's certainly not the case now. Is that you know some private universities are, are charging up to eighty thousand a year. You know, mm-hmm. maybe some you get financial aid, maybe to cover some of it. Some maybe some scholarship aid that doesn't have to be repaid, but uh, the bulk of the financial aid is in the form of loans, and that's a that's a crushing debt for people. Even the public universities are. Far more expensive than that, than they were, and there, I think we reached a, a tipping point where uh, that whole system of rising costs in higher education uh, has to be examined because we can't have uh, inflation at triple the standard rate of inflation uh, going on year after year after year in higher ed. And we're
0: and we're not even you're talking about inflation, but we're not even talking about income. I mean, you, right. you, the the income. From year to year is in the, in the, you know, one percentile
1: or even that's less. Right. That's
0: Inflations right. Inflation is about five to nine.
1: Yep, yes. And then yeah. college, we're talking about 20 to 30. That's right. That's right. And that's the... Uh, and that just can't be sustained. You know, so, you know, the, it can't be sustained. Yeah. I mean, you're talking
0: about a 29% difference between year yes. to year, college <laughs> going up, and pay is not even move budging. That's so, right. I mean, people yeah. are making less this year, from what I understand, than last year. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But once we tally up the end of the year, I mean, people are going to make less this year than they did last year due to inflation.
1: Right. I mean, my, my son's senior year at Yale. Twenty uh, something years ago, it was twenty eight thousand dollars, which seemed like a lot of money then. Well,
0: congratulations! But, My daughter goes to Hopkins this year, sixty one thousand.
1: There you go, and that, and, and <laughs> Yale is now seventy five or eighty, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, know, good luck. Yeah, that, that shows you that uh, the, how how much the cost of inflation for higher ed has gone up far beyond the standard inflation rate. You know, that's uh, uh, that's just, uh, just, just a, a sign of the of things going off the rails.
0: But but, but we need education. We need people to be out there. Go out there and. and don't be, I mean, we're having these conversations. That if you're, we need to lower taxes in the state. This is comes from, uh, Karlik on YouTube. We need lower taxes in the state. Is that possible to achieve? We, I mean, we do have one of the highest tax, uh, rates in the country, but do we, do we, can we lower taxes and still provide the services that we're providing?
1: We can lower taxes on some, but we will have to raise taxes on some to do that. We need, we need more revenue. Uh, which, in my view, means that we need to have uh, a higher rate of taxes on those at the highest levels of income. Uh, and That's not going to happen. And we don't happen. We don't happen to tax people all that high. We need a, a higher rate, higher tax on capital gains and dividends and interest income for mm-hmm. those who are at the very high end of our. Oh no! Don't tax, tax my scale. dividends
0: anymore. Come on now! You're already gaining like forty percent <laughs> on my dividends.
1: Stop. But we need to, you know, because where else are we going to get the money? We don't want to raise the income tax uh, on moderate income people. We don't want to mm-hmm. raise the sales tax. We don't want to raise um, uh, other taxes. But there is great. Uh, there is great wealth in the state. We did a study uh, from the uh, our Office of Fiscal Analysis said that for people who earn less than $100,000 a year, mm-hmm. um, less than 10% of their income comes from investment income, dividends, interest, and capital gains. Yep. When you get to the level of $2 million a year, I don't know if there's a, a typical person making $2 million, <laughs> but at that point... Well, oh, Marty 20- Loonies <laughs> of the world. We're going <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> you know, that's a decade worth of <laughs> but, uh for people who are at the $2 million a year income and higher, mm-hmm. only uh, 20% of their income comes from earned income and 80% comes from investment income. Uh, that's the difference. you know. And for people under 100000 it's 10% in unearned income and 90% or more in earned income.
0: So you're, what well, you're telling me is I didn't need to make more money so I could pay less taxes. That's right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but that's highly improbable. I mean, but the, the thing is, too, that the people that are paying taxes, they come from communities that they are contributing more. To the tax base, you know they 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 have more influence over the political structure, you know how you know how you know you know how these PACs work, right, you know right. those communities got more money, so how do they how do they get, still gain the upper hand? I mean, in in the legislature, versus you know philosophies from the inner city that we have, because very few people in the inner city are not two million. They they more likely are from the the burbs than they are from
1: well, New Haven. That, that's right, and that's our uh, our challenge too is that. Uh, A state like Connecticut, uh, we have our our cities have the same challenges that urban areas have all over the country. But we have the extra challenge that none of our cities are large in area, uh, substantially significant uh, populations Mm -hmm. that can help compel a political solution. Mm -hmm. We have to work by sort of guerrilla warfare to build coalitions with our first ring suburbs in particular, because if you look at it, uh, if you look at the population of New Haven, Hartford and Bridgeport together, the three of them together uh, constitute less than 12% of the state's population. Uh, if you look at, at uh, uh, Boston by itself, is about 12% of the past, uh, population of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, Providence actually is the biggest city in New England relative to its state's population. It's mm-hmm. about 16%. Mm-hmm. So, But in New York, over 40% of the population in New York State is within New York City. Mm-hmm. So 40% of the legislators in Albany are representing districts in New York City. Uh, mm-hmm. So we don't have the... Uh, the benefit of, uh, of a of a huge population center that's an urban area, uh, that's been a challenge. It's uh, in uh fact, and dwindling. Uh, it's dwindling. A hundred years ago, Connecticut was a much more urban state than it is now. Because in the 1920 census, uh, New Haven then had 160,000, 162,000 people. Wow. Uh, when the population of the state was uh, only about a million and a half, so at that point, New Haven um, had uh, you know 12 or 15 percent of the state's population, and uh, mm-hmm. Hartford the same, Bridgeport the same. So those three cities were much bigger as a percentage of the state's population than, mm-hmm. they are, than they are now. So that's why we have to be creative. We can't dictate something, but we have to count on being able to build coalitions of like-minded Democrats in at least the first-ring suburbs. And uh, fortunately, we've had that. But once you go beyond the first ring, it gets uh, harder luck. to find allies. Because yes. right.
0: yes. <laughs> that money money talks, and there's a lot of money. Um, and, and the farther you go away from the city, and I've noticed that, too, and, and especially with the Puerto Rican population that you saw – come and go in Fairhaven. haven puerto rican population in Fairhaven haven came and went and where did they go as so as they made their money they moved to the suburbs to north haven everywhere else that's that's,
1: that's right in many ways i remember uh, back in 1975 as i mentioned when i was first campaigning there was uh there was one uh, puerto rican family on a on a certain block of salt stall avenue it was a man named louis Mercado, who mm-hmm. was a machinist he was a widower he had two sons but he was also a poet that wrote very uh, uh, superb sensitive poetry in both spanish and in english and Oh. I met him when I was canvassing, went back another time to have dinner with him and his sons, but uh, he was sort of a pioneer at the time, and then uh, large others' mm-hmm. numbers followed him. But I remember, you know, that uh, uh, Gumercindo del Rio and uh, Gumpy del Rio and Carlos Rodriguez and, and others who were uh, instrumental in, in helping to attract people to come from Puerto Rico to New Haven mm-hmm. uh, to work, you know, Herman Garcia and, uh, and the Rodriguez family, an enormous uh, mm-hmm. uh, enormous parents and their family were uh, were really pioneers in helping to uh, uh, to build up the Puerto Rican population in New Haven and the...
0: Uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s, mm. and and now they've they've done well for themselves. They got the education. <laughs> they moved on. Uh, now we need those people to come back and contribute to these neighborhoods at least politically. Make sure that if you do, if you're Hispanic, you're Puerto Rican, you moved out to North Haven, you still have influence over politics in New Haven in a weird <laughs> most way. But through your politician and making sure your politicians aware that you know they they also contribute to you know they all vote on the same. Legisl- legislation right, right. that affects everyone,
1: mm-hmm. but of course the advantage with the uh, Puerto Rican population is they were already American citizens to participate in, yes, in that's democracy true. right away, and and of course uh, uh, those coming from other nations in uh, in uh, Central and South America don't have that advantage.
0: No, and right now you're, yeah. you're, you're disadvantaged because right now in Fair Haven you have I don't I can't even guess how many thousands of votes that do not even exist right now.
1: Yes. Yes. Yep. And so, and, and that shows up in the uh, the voter totals from those those wards too. <laughs>
0: so, how can you get more more monies when? And that's what people don't understand about education. Oh, we, we you know, why don't we get, why don't we get more money? It was because as New Haven tax pool, we don't put in enough to to be able to request out versus a small town up north that you know contributes millions of dollars to the government and their education system and schools look way different.
1: Right. Well, New Haven and uh, does get a substantial amount of, uh, of money from the state, as does Hartford and Bridgeport. And in the past couple of years, uh, we were able to, really able to make a breakthrough to benefit New Haven in terms of increasing uh, the payment in lieu of taxes, uh, okay. money that is paid by the state, uh, to replace the money from tax-exempt uh, uh, private colleges and universities and hospitals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, New Haven got an infusion of $50 million a year in additional money in that category because, wow. uh, again, we were able to build a uh, coalition while while it's only the larger cities that have uh, those institutions, uh, for the most part, having mm-hmm. colleges, having hospitals, and uh, uh, and having private universities, uh, the uh, the state partially reimburses them for the revenue not collected. But uh, we also reimburse uh, communities for state property as well that's not taxable. And we made a coalition with, represent, with the legislators from eastern Connecticut who said, well, our towns are poor also. They have uh, low property values mm-hmm. in many cases. So what we did was... We created a three-tier structure so that those whose net grand list per capita is under $100,000 mm-hmm. would get 50% pilot reimbursement, and for those between $100,000 and $200,000, they'd get 40. For those over that, would get 30. Prior to that, everybody was only getting in the low 20s. So for New Haven, it was a huge increase for most of the cities, but everybody got an increase. So we were able to build a coalition for it. So wow. even the uh, the wealthier communities. The the real problem in that was prior to that change, uh, Greenwich got the same pilot reimbursement for Greenwich Hospital property that New Haven got yeah. for Yale, New Haven, or that yeah, yeah, Hartford yeah. got for Hartford Hospital. That's now changed.
0: Oh, okay, good, because yes. Greenwich, <laughs> Greenwich doesn't really need uh. No, their mill
1: rate is 11, and they're well able to fund all their services. <laughs> oh, uh, wow. Because Those... property is so valuable.
0: Yeah, very valuable. And
1: again, shows the difference. The per capita and net grand list in Greenwich is about three quarters of a million dollars a year, over 750000 At the other end, 169th place town is New Britain, where the per capita value is less than $70,000 that shows you the stark contrast in a single state. Wow. Uh, diversified.
0: You're Just just like your constituents are diversified, you have them all. You have from the richy-rich all the way down to, you know, the most humblest of individuals, and you care for them each with lots of love. We are running out of time. We're running out of time. It, it happens every time. See, look at that. You walked in like maybe five minutes ago. <laughs> uh you want to talk a little bit about um, – what would you like to, you know what, you can have the mic. Talk to New Haven if you want. You're listening yes. to 103.5 WNHH, org. Powered by La Voz Hispana. Harry Dross is in the back giving me some times. And this is Marty Looney giving you his final thoughts.
1: Okay, well, uh, one of the things I'd like to say, looking forward to the next uh, term in the General Assembly, is to continue um, our struggle to enhance regional cooperation. Uh, that's uh, some, something that we have not had in the state. We have 169 uh, jealously self-protective municipal fiefdoms. Uh, Self-preserving. <laughs> un- unwilling to cooperate with others, unwilling even to, uh, uh, to to get the economies of scale that they might be able to do, and uh, and freely holding the state back in, in many ways. People come to Connecticut from other states. They say, you're a very small state to have 169 uh, separate towns and no and no regional government at all. Um, we have far too many school districts in this state. Too many small-town school districts have actually been losing population uh, over the last decade, and yet uh, they want to continue to get the same amount of education they, they've had, and they refuse to, uh, to to combine into more regional districts. We have to make a, a breakthrough on that. Part of that, again, goes to the affordable housing component of, mm-hmm. of towns looking through zoning practices to keep out uh, lower-income people as well. The two go together. But what we have to, to look at is that we've had one successful model for Uh, or regionalism in the state, and that was when we consolidated the probate districts in the state back Mm -hmm. in 2010. We had 117 separate districts, and the system was not functioning well. Some of the probate courts were only open a couple of days a week. The system was running deficits. So we transformed that system and reduced 117 districts down to 54. And since 2010, we've had a much more successful, vibrant, and uh, uh, effective probate system. But what it meant in many cases was, uh, this was really controversial because it meant, abolition of a number of elected positions because the probate judges are the only elected uh, judges in the state. All the others are the superior court judges and appellate and supreme court judges are appointed, but the probate judges are, are elected. And yet uh, we were able to, operating on the principle that any town with a population under 40,000 should probably become part of a regional district. The larger cities would continue to be single town districts, but that has worked very well. We need to do something along those lines uh, for, for school districts. Uh, we need to have towns... Uh, uh, be able to to combine as economic entities to attract businesses to a region, uh, mm-hmm. not just looking at, at when a new economic uh, uh, development initiative comes into a region there's one town it 's a winner because it gets a new development and everyone else that competed mm-hmm. for it is a loser. There are other states that do it differently they have a revenue sharing uh, system like minnesota's had for years called the uh, the net grand list uh, uh, the guaranteed tax base system where towns uh, in an entire region benefit from any new uh, factory or economic development facility that comes into any town in their region, a portion of the new revenue is is uh, is a portion to all the towns in the region, not just the one that actually has the physical development. Mm. And that has really helped an entire region to market itself uh, successfully over the years. We need to think creatively and uh, and move along those lines because we're being uh, we're being held back by our current system. That certainly was understandable in colonial times, <laughs> but uh, uh, not any longer.
0: It is not sustainable
1: and is not sustainable.
0: Yes, you sound when you talk about this region, you, you do sound like uh, uh, it sounds more like government is turning into a business and we need to consolidate the upper management of well, the state. True. That's
1: one of the problems, too. We have so many of these small school districts are top heavy with administrators. Yeah. You have an administrative layer. Then you have the, uh, the administrators who are in schools. Now, some people say, oh, you're talking about closing schools, not talking about closing schools. We probably even uh, we need to maintain the schools we have for the most part, except where enrollment is really fallen. But we need administrative consolidation at the higher end. Mm-hmm. We don't need as many districts uh, with uh, with uh, with uh, highly paid superintendents, deputy superintendents, and all of the other central office bureaucracies supervising a very small number of schools. That's where the savings could be.
0: Wow, wow, is it, is it, Marty, time is up. You came here with solutions. We talked about lots of problems, <laughs> but you talked more about solutions and in a whole career full of them. Um, you have an opponent coming up. I guess I don't know how how you view this. I mean, you're already talking about future. Ventures in the legislator as as if November is all passed by and you're ready to go back to work.
1: Well, I never take anything for granted, but I you know I do have plans for the uh, for the next term. I do have an opponent uh, this time. I've had uh, opponents in the past. I always campaign hard, whether I have an active opponent or not, and this year won't be any different in that regard.
0: Very good. Thank you very much, Marty. Uh, I apologize for the for the mishap up front, but it still turned out to be a great conversation. Appreciate for all your knowledge, your history. Um, I hope everyone that was out there listening right now you got a class one oh one on how to get involved in politics, be successful in politics, and give back to your community such as Marty Looney has.
1: I'd be happy to come back anytime.
0: All right, thank you very much. <laughs> this, you've been listening to one oh three point five FMW NH Newhaven Independent powered by Lavosi Spina C T and I want to thank again Mr. Harry Dross for everything. You guys have a great afternoon. <laughs>